on WHMP. Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we have with us Larry Hot. I'd love to have Larry's walk-up music played. Dan Torres, can you help us with that, you think? Okay, special prize, if anybody knows. Do you know what the, you know what that theme is? I don't. Tell us, Larry Hot. It's La Dolce Vita. Uh... La Dolce Vita, one of the greatest films ever made. So this morning, I'm here to talk about a film that's not the greatest film ever made, but it is one of the most entertaining about a baseball player who is one of the most And we should note that players. the person who is talking is Emmy Award-winning filmmaker Larry Hot, at Emmy Award for his documentaries. Larry Hot, please proceed. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. Um, I know you saw this film, Bill. It's called uh, It Ain't Over. It is about Yogi Berra. It showed at the Pleasant Street Theater. Not the Pleasant Street Theater. <laughs> that takes me back. <laughs> at the Amherst Cinema. <laughs> Shows how old I am. Uh, and uh, it is still making the rounds in the theaters. It was released in, in May of this year. Uh, it is produced uh, well, with, with the aid of Lindsay Berra, the granddaughter of Yogi Berra. And it's a pretty conventional archival film. Lots of interviews. Interviews with people... Uh, even if you don't know who they are, you've heard their names. Every great baseball player, and some of them are older interviews, archival interviews, Mickey Mantle, uh, Joe Garagiola, um, George Steinbrenner, every, every Yankee you've ever heard of. And this film is really more ab about a personality than it is about baseball. And you don't need to know anything about baseball. So I think if we hear a clip from the trailer for the film, you get a sense of how much fun this film is. The 2015 All-Star Game features the four greatest living baseball players. Hank Aaron, Johnny Bench, Sandy Koufax, and Willie Mays, who are all absolutely amazing players in their own right. But I'm in the room sitting next to my grandfather, Yogi Berra. And I'm thinking, wait a second. He's got more MVPs than any of these guys. He's won more World Series rings than all four of them combined. And I look at him and I said, are you dead? And he said, not yet. One of the greatest World Series resumes of any player ever. Hey, he got it done. He was a winner because he had all the rings to prove it. He's the figure that was larger than life. There's no Jackie without the acceptance of Yogi Berra. When Yogi comes to the team, they say he doesn't look like a Yankee. He wasn't six foot three with blonde hair. Everything about him was kind of funny. He was a character. He was made fun of in the New York press. But that sort of became who Yogi Berra was, this funny little guy. That's right. He's called a funny little guy. And you saw at the opening of the trailer, that's his granddaughter, Lindsay Bearer is saying he should have gotten this big award, but four other men got it. The film is a bit of a diatribe. Even though it's fun and you meet lots of great people and Billy Crystal is in it and his, he's fantastic because he's such a great baseball fan, fan and a good comedian. But Lindsay, the granddaughter, is pissed off because her grandfather is not considered one of the greatest baseball players of all time. And one reason in her thesis is that a cartoon show was made based on his name called Yogi Bear, smarter than the average bear, which was making fun of his intelligence. And of course, the film makes the point that he was extremely intelligent. 
as a catcher, he controlled the game. And I, I just want to point out the other thing that, that uh, Lindsay didn't point out. That's the hardest position in baseball. Yeah. Squatting for all those hours and uh, uh, just being thrown at by people who have mm-hmm. that kind of power and that kind of mastery over their pitches. That's a hard position. And people remember Yogi Berra more as a manager than they do as a baseball player. And they also remember him as a hitter, but it was his catching that he was best at. And he's really famous for being the catcher in the game that Don Larson won in the World Series in 1956, a perfect game. And like he said, uh, 50% of baseball is 90% mental. <laughs> well, I was close to that. I was going to read a couple of the things that he's famous for saying, right? He's, this is like what uh, Buzz just said. Baseball is 90% mental. The other half is physical. There we go. <laughs> right? I always thought that record would stand until it was broken. <laughs> you can observe a lot by watching. And my f- absolute favorite is if the world were perfect, it wouldn't be. Right. Which is absolutely true. Who would want to live in that kind of utopia? I think that I think the one that really Larry, I think the under the aphorism from Yogi Berra that we need to really uh, focus on for one second is the one where he says some of the things I said, I actually said. <laughs> well, there's uh, interviews in the film with one of uh, the commercial writers. He was he he made his uh, his living. Uh, doing commercials after he was fired by George Steinbrenner. And that's another controversial part of the film. But the writer for the commercials takes credit for some of the things that Yogi Berra supposedly said. Um, but there's something else interesting about this film, and I'm going to connect it uh, when we come, you know, after we come on to the next segment. But it's Yogi Berra as every man. Why was he so beloved? Uh, he's five foot seven, which they keep calling short. Uh, for me, I aspire to five foot seven. But he's, for a baseball player, he, he's short. He's got kind of an ugly mug. You wouldn't call him a handsome guy. And he has an amazing wife. And this is, she is behind him in all the pictures. She's in the interviews. You know that old saying, behind every great man is a surprised woman? But you get the impression that Carmen Barra was not surprised. Carmen Barra knew what she had. And she met him when he was a nobody when he was playing in the American Legion Ball in St. Louis and stuck with him throughout it. And you see in the interviews that she is what holds the family together. And I know this sounds kind of traditional. You know, she's the little woman in the background. There's some scenes where they say, well, mom was in the kitchen and all this activity was happening out front. But you see that she is the glue that holds this very large family together. I want to say one other thing about one of his sayings that comes up in this film. I kept thinking about it. They were going to get to it. When you come to a fork in the road, take it. Mm -hmm. Now, I said, oh, I know something about this because my sister used to live in Montclair, New Jersey, and she took me to Yogi Berra's house. And to get to his house, you go up a hill and you get to a fork. And she says, you can go either way. It goes to the same place. (laughs) I said, that must have been what he meant by you come to a fork in the road, take it. And then in the film, Billy Crystal says, I went to Montclair. And then they show the fork in the road and say, see, he made sense. And one of the things that his nieces in the film keep saying is you can tell a true yogiism by whether it makes sense or not. If it's silly, like they give an example, two rights don't make a wrong, right? He never said it. It doesn't make any sense. But the other things he says, for example, we made too many wrong mistakes, or pie a la mode with ice cream. (laughs) 
<laughs> I wish I had an answer to that because I'm tired of answering that. <laughs> they all make sense in a way. But he is somebody that you can identify with. I don't identify with him as a great catcher. I don't identify with him as a great manager. I identify with him as somebody who just is average in appearance and does extraordinary things. Right. And I just, want to, also, I, I just want to remind, well, Bill, uh, you may remember Tim Barra, his son, uh, played for UMass. Actually, he, he set records as a receiver at UMass football. Uh, and he, Yogi Berra loved this area. I know somebody who actually got a chance to talk to him twice when he was visiting here, and he just talked about this would be a wonderful place to live. So we have yeah. a connection to Yogi yeah. Berra. Well, I want to just just remind me of something. I thought uh, you were going to say his fa most famous statement, which is the title of the film, It Ain't Over Till It's Over. Oh, oh, I, I like it when films know how to end. So in the credits, please, if you watch this film, stay to the credits. They have person after person saying, it ain't over till it's over, because that's the perfect thing to say at the end of the credits. And then they get to little Bobby Costa at the end. And he says, I'm going to have the final word. I'm going to say, it ain't over till it's over. And then you think they're going to go to the final credit, but no. <laughs> they bring on Yogi Berra. He says, no, <laughs> now it's over. <laughs> so they knew how to end the film. Bill, I cut you off a moment ago. Yeah, there are a couple of things here that you both have said that I'd like to comment on. One is, I think what the film is really about is love of family and lo love of this filmmaker for her grandfather. And it's also about the unfairness of the media and the culture and how we characterize people and caricature people. Uh, Buzz made the point that catching is a very difficult position physically. It is. It's also the person who is the field general for the team. You have to know every batter, every pitcher. You have to be aware of the present. You are the director. It is a cerebral position as well as a physical challenge. So I think that is something that needs to be uh, noted. Also, the film, I think, is extremely honest about family because Yogi is portrayed, I think, accurately as this really loving person. And uh, the film gets into how his son, who is actually a really excellent baseball player, Short, a shortstop. Is, is destroyed by drugs. Yes, and, and the so son, the son uh, that's a key part of the film because the son talks quite a bit about how his father sat him down and straightened him out. And that he really, in a way, you could see that he regrets that he wasn't known as an all-star. They didn't make it to an all-star. But he respected his father so much. And you see a scene at the Barrow Museum where he says he's been sober for 30 years. Uh, and that's an emotional moment. And I think you're absolutely right, Bill. The film is about the strength of family. It's ostensibly about fame and, and baseball and the Yankees. But it really is about this tight-knit family and what a wonderful person he was. And he also, they're clear he had his flaws. He held a grudge for 14 years after he was fired by George Steinbrenner right. and wouldn't come back to Yankee Stadium, which is a key part of this film. It's where the, sort of the tension lies until he got Steinbrenner to apologize to him, which is engineered by a radio host, by the way. So show him how, how much power you guys have. Mm. Bill, I want, well, to I, I want to return to what you were just saying about him being a field... Uh, I, I was the bat boy for the Atlanta Braves. My wife hates it when I keep saying that, but I do. Did you and say bad boy or bat boy? I was both. <laughs> but while a bat boy, I saw an interview of the then great catcher, Joe Torrey, and he was talking about how he handled the pitchers and how he knew 
what pitchers to ask for. And he, he began the interview, well, I'm no, I'm no Yogi Berra, but he understood how great Yogi was. It Ain't Over the, is the name of the film. Uh, one of the reviews is titled, When Yogi Berra Saw a Strike, He Hit It. And that, that is something he said. It's simple, but it makes a lot of sense. And it does get to the essence of the unfairness that Yogi Berra is not considered generally a great hitter, a great baseball player. And he was. He had 70 hits in 71 of the 75 World Series games he played in. He was also a player, and, and I think this is worth noting because he was known as a bad ball hitter. That is, he hit balls out of the strike zone. And I, an aphorism that uh, does not appear in this film, but one I think is real, is that Yogi Berra said, or someone said about him, Yogi Berra considers the strike zone a suggestion. <laughs> like, like a yellow light, like a yellow traffic light. Well, Bill, you're a lifelong Yankees fan. When, when you think of, the, of, the, of your great heroes, does Yogi Berra come to your mind? Absolutely. I wrote a, a piece in the Gazette after Yogi died. I was at the stadium the next week. I was looking at the uh, uh, memorial and the flowers that were left for him. He was, I think, the essence of every person. And I think that's the point that Larry makes that is so telling. Yogi Berra dropped out of school when he was in eighth grade. He had a hard scrabble life. His family was lower middle class. Uh, and he made it. And I think the one comment I want to go back to that Larry said is what his wife Carmen saw in him. And what she saw in him that is projected is this incredible human being, someone who has enormous love within him that he shared. And I think that comes through as well. This is a story about a person and emotions and family way more than it is about baseball. And just to give it some context, the opening of the film, what Lindsay, his granddaughter, says about an all-star game in 2015 where they supposedly had the greatest living ball players of all time. They had Hank Aaron, Johnny Bench, Sandy Koufax, and Willie Mays. But Yogi Berra, who was alive at the time, was missing. And that's, how her, that's her setup for the film. It says, how come he was not with those people? What was it about his personality of the times, the commercials, whatever it was, why did not people take him seriously? Because the future ain't what it used to be. <laughs> well said, Buzz. There, there's something else, which is that the commercialization of Yogi Bear and the Yogi Bear uh, takeoffs and the cartoon and all that, um, I, I think diminished him in the public eye. And I, I just want to go back to how important Yogi Berra was as a human being and how decent he was as a human being because one of the scenes in the film that I think is really telling is the very famous clip of Yogi Berra tagging out or not tagging out, uh, if you ask Yogi, Jackie Robinson. And Jackie Robinson had integrated baseball not long before and Yogi Berra was a great supporter of Jackie Robinson. Yeah. He went out of his way 
to welcome him to Major League Baseball. I think that's a really important point because Yogi Berra and his seemingly love for Jackie Robinson uh, shows that he was an open human being. And later in life, he was supporting LGBTQ issues. So Yogi Berra was uh, open-minded, warm, and, and loving. Uh, and I, res I now respect him, and I'm glad I saw this film. I, I highly recommend it, even though, in terms of filmmaking, it's pretty conventional, but the story is wonderful. It carries it along, and it is a truly American story. And I'm going to connect it when we come back from the break with another film that seems unrelated, but I think is right on point. We'll be back with more Cool Films with Larry Hot right after this. That never, ever happened. This was supposed to happen, but it never did. This is about two years ago. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It is critical that the investigation is not limited to federal violations of gender discrimination, but includes the alleged allegations of corruption, nepotism, abuse of power, and use of position to aid Ms. Cunningham's personal business. These allegations actually require an investigation by a different body than a Title IX investigator. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP News, Information, and the Arts. A Northampton man contends with his slow passage into blindness. What's that like? Andrew Leland's new book, The Country of the Blind, is part memoir, part historical and cultural investigation. Leland's determined not to merely survive the transition, but to revel in that which makes blindness enlightening, accepting uncertainty, connecting with others across differences. Warm and funny, The Country of the Blind is an exhilarating tour of a way of being most of us have never paused to consider. Pick up The Country of the Blind at Northampton's independent bookstore, Broadside Bookshop. Are you tired of feeling like a watchless hero in a world full of timekeeping villains? Fear not. Hero Watch Repair is here to save the day. With over 20 years of experience and a heroic five-star customer rating, Hero Watch is the ultimate superhero of watch repair and customization in the valley. These heroes possess the power to buy, fix, sell, and customize watches like no other. They'll swoop in, rescue your timepiece, and restore it to its former glory. Call Avery at Hero Watch Repair, East Hampton. Technicians, this is your chance. Get up to a $5,000 sign-on bonus at Gary Rome Hyundai or refer a technician to get a $2,500 referral fee. Be part of the family and receive truly exceptional compensation and full benefits. Join the Time Magazine's National Dealer of the Year team with a proven track record of team members averaging over 10 years at Gary Rome Hyundai. Technicians get up to a $5,000 sign-on bonus or refer a technician to get a $2,500 referral fee. To learn more and apply, go to GaryRomeHyundai.com family you're listening to talk the talk with bill newman and buzz eisenberg whmp we continue our conversation with florence-based emmy award-winning filmmaker larry hot larry another film you want to bring to our attention please yes well i should say that i am watching now the documentaries that are in contention for the academy award and every year I get sent, I used to get sent, uh, they used to send me them as VHS tapes and I'd fill my house and then uh, DVD tapes. So I had a lot of friends who wanted to come over and borrow my tapes. But now they come online at the Academy site, you know, password protected. So I've lost a lot of friends. That's why you, I was just going to say you lost a <laughs> nobody, lot of friends. Nobody talks to me anymore. <laughs> but I've been, I, I get assigned films to watch. Uh, it takes about six months to get through all, all of them. And I watched the first one on my list which is called The Invention of the Other. 
And my heart sank when I looked at the length of the film, two and a half hours. And I said, all right, well, my rule is if I don't like it after 10 minutes, I don't have to watch it. So, well, I watched this thing all the way through. I was absolutely transfixed. What this film is about is the indigenistas of Brazil, which is not the indigenous people themselves. It's a group uh, called FUNA. A, uh, F-U-N-A-I, it's the National Indian Foundation, and indige- indigenista is basically a soldier whose job is to protect the indigenous people. And this film is about specifically a group, about 30 people, who are taking six men from a tribe called Karubos, who they had first contact with a couple of years before. They took them to their base, and they got to know these men, and they wanted to reunite them with their families. So the idea is to take them back into the jungle and find their families and reunite them. Now, you also understand that there's enormous pressure. There's a very few of the uncontacted people left in Brazil or in any, any jungle or forest in the world. And the pressures from ranchers and meat producers and development is fierce and the battles are dangerous. People are killing each other. And as you find in the film, it's not only the white people or the non-indigenous people killing the indigenous people, but they're killing each other. They have for centuries, for millennia, uh, but now the pressure on the land is even greater. So as you get to know these characters, you also get to know the people who are taking them into the woods. And the title, The Invention of the Other, that's what made me think, how can I connect this with the Yogi Berra film? Right. <laughs> All right, seriously. Can't wait to hear this Seriously, one. okay. So what does the invention of the other mean? As you start watching a film about first contact with people who have never met a white person, a white person defined basically as a person from civilization, right? who is the other? How do the white people define the Indians as the other, and how did the Indians define the white people as the other? In the Yogi Berra film, do we define him as the other? Is that why we like him? No. We like him because he's one of us, really, because that's what makes him Yogi Berra. He's approachable, right? You can understand him. You can relate to him. Can you relate to an indigenous person who has had no contact with your civilization. So let me tell you a couple of things about this film. We don't have a clip to play because it's all in Portuguese and indigenous languages. When you first meet the indigenous people who are traveling with these soldiers, they are completely naked, completely naked. They haven't been all along, but they decide they need to go back to the way they would dress, which is out any clothes, in the jungle. But one of the first things they say to the soldiers is, when are you going to let us use a shotgun? When are you going to teach us how to use a chainsaw? Can I have a new machete? Right. And in that moment, you realize how our attitude towards them is, oh, we want them to be kept pure. And their attitude is, I want you to make my life easier. Right. That's one thing. The other thing that comes out instantly is that they won't let them find their families for at least three weeks or more because everybody has some kind of infection. It's COVID or the flu or just whatever they carry with them. And in their past contacts, even right now in the 21st century, they have wiped out entire villages just from the flu. 
just like when the, the, in colonial times, even before the 1620s, the fishermen who arrived on the shores of what is now the United States wiped out most of the indigenous population with smallpox and other diseases. And they are very aware of that. What I found out in doing some research on this film is that these very same soldiers, I'm calling them soldiers because they're in, they're in uniforms, but they're a special unit of the government, have also been accused of murder and abuse of these people. So there's some, there's some mistrust going on. What you start to see is this anxiety about what's gonna happen when they see their families, when they come together with their families. Before they do, they have to feed themselves. They don't bring a lot of food because there's too much to carry in their canoes. So they learn from the natives. And what the natives do is they hunt monkeys. Right? See, small monkeys, they're chimpanzee size. They skin them and roast them. And this becomes, to me, the most disturbing image in the film. Because once you've skinned a monkey and roasted it, it looks exactly like the skeleton of a child. And it looks like cannibalism. And it's very disturbing. And when they finally do make contact with their tribes, first they see the men come out, and then the children come out. The women stay in the background. And every single one of these children has a monkey on their back. Not an addiction, but an actual small monkey, a pet monkey. Right? And I began to wonder, is this a monkey that they're going to raise and then eat? Uh, somebody said to me, no, actually what anthropologists say is they use these monkeys to learn their behavior so it makes it easier for them to understand what they do and kill them later. Not their pet monkeys, but adult monkeys. So this contrast between the people who are primates, living and eating primates, is very disturbing for, for in our civilized mentality. I'm sorry, can you go back to Yogi and tell us what the connection is? Okay, so back to, back to Yogi. It made me think about what are the norms of our civilization. In our civilization, we accept baseball and sports as acceptable, somewhat violent activities. I mean, we say, uh, say football and rugby might be the most violent, or ice hockey. But baseball also has its elements of violence. But we accept that, and it's, to us, it's the norm. When we look at the other in the indigenous people, and how they kill monkeys, or maybe how they even attack another tribe, um, the way they relate to each other in terms of stealing each other's wives, what they talk about, uh, whose, whose uh, children are whose, their norms are completely different than ours. So we are acceptable, we are accepting of the norms in the Yogi Berra society, and we don't think of him as the other, we think of him as one of us. How do you accept the other? And the other, the concept of the other, is in every academic discipline. It's in sociology, it's in, it's in philosophy, it's in English literature, in deconstruction. It's the other, you know, if you pick apart. It's in modern American politics. It is, absolutely, and, and in fact, it is the root of the problem of a modern American po po uh, politics. So the invention of the other will be released in theaters soon, I'm sure, because it's a phenomenal film. And I, I don't think many people are uninterested in the last human beings on Earth to be contacted. You know, what do they think of us? How quickly do they want to assimilate? Do they want to assimilate? There was just a story in the front page of the New York Times a week ago about one of these tribes and this group, F-U-N-I-I-Funai, 
And this group, the uh, reason that some of these indigenous people came to contact them was because their fire was going out. Their literal fire, they needed embers to keep their fire going. And that made me question, hmm, didn't I not know how to start a fire? I, I don't know, it, it, was, it was not answered in the article. So we have a symbiotic relationship with these people, whether they want it or not, whether we want it or not. Uh, and this other, this othering, is really part of human nature, uh, but it also leads to the destruction of society at the same time as a respect for other parts of society. It's the metaphorical monkey on our back. Exactly. I, I want to... Larry, I hope you can stay with us a few more minutes because I want to talk to you about this scene in this movie that you just described about the monkeys on the kid's back because it presents, or you present this, you present that the film presents this, like this is something that, of course, we'd never think about. But, of course, we have kids who raise farm animals that go to these fairs and are in these contests, and then they end up as food. My kids. Yeah, they, and, they, we raise livestock and, and, and they eat them. Yeah. Yes. So it's not unusual for children to raise animals on farms and love them and then, and then eat them. In fact, uh, you might know that in a biblical history, uh, the idea of a sacrifice of an animal is that animal has to be pure and has to be raised and treated very well. In other words, you have to love that animal before you kill it. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a sacrifice. We used to raise ducks and chickens, and our kids would ask, are we eating peep or cheap? Yeah. <laughs> right, right. And sometimes people don't want to name their farm animals for that very reason. Um, I had a friend in Cummington years ago who had the largest pig in Massachusetts, if not the world, named Susie. And they could not bring themselves to slaughter Susie, right? Uh, they, they needed a giant backhoe to bury Susie. I remember watching Susie eat one of those big zucchinis with one bite and then down a liter of orange soda. <laughs> <laughs> but the, this is, you know, it is not uncommon across the world for people to raise animals and love them and then eat them. It's harder to accept it when it's a monkey, right? Because we identify with them as another primate, or at least I do. And I think that's one of the uh, hard things about watching this film is trying to put yourself in somebody else's place, the other. And the invention of the other is a brilliant title uh, because it yeah, makes you think, how am I understanding people who are unlike me? Bill. Let's, let's leave it there. We'll take a quick break. We'll be right back. the talk with bill newman and buzz eisenberg coming up right here on whmp for whmp news i'm jess tyler Amherst school committee members ben harrington allison mcdonald and peter demling all resigned within the past two weeks ben harrington spoke with talk the talk on whmp about that decision i think i've given up on amherst i lost faith in the town in general it's not just the the school district but i, I think the problem is that is that We've had an issue for quite a long time before I even stepped on to the school committee, and it's cultural 
And I think right now it, it, it's going to take drastic action for people to look in the mirror. Harrington isn't just stepping down. He's leaving Amherst. It's worth sacrificing my, my political career or aspirations in order to get people to actually see themselves in like full color, vivid HD. Harrington says his decision was met with some hostility. And once I made that decision, it's like the vitriol got worse and worse and worse and worse. The Amherst Town Council and remaining school committee members met this week to work on a plan to address the lack of a quorum, which essentially puts all policymaking decisions on hold. A man is under arrest following a reported shooting that left one person with non-life-threatening injuries Tuesday afternoon in the patch area of Turner's Falls. The shooting happened in the area between the Cumberland Farms on Montague City Road and the Connecticut River. The suspected shooter fled on foot into the wooded area with a search ensuing by local law enforcement agencies and the Massachusetts State Police utilizing canine units and an air wing. The suspect was later taken into custody at approximately 9 p.m. following a traffic stop on I-91 in Springfield. Showers with some pockets of heavy rain this morning, maybe even a thunderstorm, and then some partial clearing this afternoon. Still the slight chance of a scattered shower, a high of 78 to 82. Partial clearing tonight, overnight low of 50 to 56. Mostly sunny tomorrow, 74 to 78, and the sunshine continues through the weekend. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. In a world of chaos, Armstrong and Getty Show cuts through the fake news of the day and gets straight to the common sense heart of the burning issues listeners really care about. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. Armstrong and Getty. Be informed and involved. Listen to Armstrong and Getty weekdays from 6 to 9 p.m. right here on 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. Hi, this is Jessica from Fitness Together. I meet clients every day who tell me that as the number on their scale grew higher, their self-esteem dropped lower, and going to a traditional gym absolutely terrified them. Here at Fitness Together, we'll work with you one-on-one, either virtually or in one of our private suites in Amherst or Northampton. We'll help you set and reach your fitness goals, and most importantly, smile every time you look in the mirror. Fitness Together in Amherst and Northampton. Your self-worth is worth Fitness Together. Franklin County has a vibrant history of farming. At the Franklin County House of Correction, we bring that history to life with education and vocational programs around farming and gardening. Incarcerated men and women learn to work in active organic garden. Best of all, they harvest, they send home to help support and feed their families. This is Sheriff Chris Donnellan, and I can't think of better therapy than farming and feeding your family. That's the history of Franklin County, and we honor it at the Sheriff's Office every day. What's for dinner tonight? What's on your plate is a conversation with the land, with the farmers. Local farm fresh food is all around. Get it direct from farms and farm stands, at farmers markets, at grocery stores, in local restaurants. Just look for CESA's bright yellow Local Hero label, letting you know that this is food from local farms, grown with care by friends and neighbors. Local Hero food, as fresh as it gets. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We are back on Talk the Talk, and we have asked Larry Hott to stay with us. Larry, of course, is the Foreign Space Emmy Award-winning filmmaker, and he has is reviewing 
the films for Academy Award consideration documentaries, and he comes with with that knowledge and those experiences of watching all of these potential Academy Award winning films. And I just want to continue. We want to continue this conversation because he was telling us about this rather not rather this remarkable film, the in- the, the invention, of, invention the of the and it raised the. And it raised for me the question, how was this film made? So tell us about that, Larry. There's a director named Bruno Jorge, who is an artist, a well-known, respected film director in Brazil. And he got access to FUNAI, which is the government agency that works with the indigenous people. And he basically is in the field with them. From what I can tell, he's doing, uh, he's with a cameraman. Uh, and he had space, I think it's a two-person crew. And they just stay with this. This is a kind of ethnographic filmmaking. Uh, this has a long history. It goes back to Margaret Mead or even before that. Um, and this very uh, ethnographic filmmaking is quite controversial now because you always have to question what is the interference of the filmmaker? What, uh, what is their point of view? What's outside the frame? Uh, there was a famous uh, line about every cut is a lie. You know, uh, film is truth at 24 frames a second. Uh, is, it turns out to not be true. Uh, every cut is a lie is a little more accurate because you don't know what's outside the frame. Uh, you don't know what editing has happened in there. So here in this one, you just have to trust that the filmmakers are showing you honestly what's happening. One of the more interesting characters in this film is a man named Bruno Pereira. We have two Brunos, the director and Bruno Pereira. He's a bear of a man. He's just heavy and hairy and funny. He's got big, thick... Uh, bottle, glasses, you know, and uh, everybody loves him, and he's the person who keeps this group together. And then at the end of the film, in the credits, it says, Memorial to Bruno Pereira, that he was killed by fishermen and other interests. They're not sure exactly who did it a couple of months after they finished filming, which is one of the reasons that the natives, the indigenous people, in the jungles of Brazil are in such trouble. Not only is there pressure, just the pressure of development, but there is violence against them. And the former president of Brazil promoted this, and the present one, Bolsonaro, has pulled back from it. And we basically have the same push and pull in the United States. We have Trump or the Trumpists and their willingness to develop everything in sight. And then we have, well, a little less development (laughs) coming from the Democrats and from administration to administration, things change, and the same thing is happening in Brazil. And I, the estimate of the number of, of thousands of square miles that are being lost every year in Brazil is phenomenal. It's a huge... Well, you know, you're talking about Brazil, but the truth is it's just as big a problem in Colombia in the Amazon jungle. A- and in Southeast and, Asia as well. And all, also in along the Pilcomayo River in Bolivia and yeah. in Venezuela. There are, yeah. and they're called the uncontacted, and if you go to the Smithsonian... In Washington, there's a huge wing that's dedicated yeah. to exactly the issues you're talking about. And sometimes people are warmly greeted, and sometimes it is... Right. Uh, there are actually many, f- many films about other people who have, who have died to trying to investigate these things, including uh, back in the 60s, uh, one of the Rockefellers. Um, this is also related to the loss of language. Um, because we tend to think that a, li- a language dies when there are fewer people speaking it. Actually, that's not the case. A language dies when it is no longer isolated and that it's assimilated. 
So you might find a living language of only 100 people because they have not been contacted, but you might have tens of thousands of people whose language dies because they are assimilated by the larger population, which is what's happening to the Navajo now. The Navajo um, had preserved their language up until recently, and they had a law that you could not be president of the Navajo Nation unless you spoke the language. But they had to drop that law because in the last 20 years, the influence of the internet uh, and television uh, finally reached the reservations in, in Arizona and New Mexico. Is assimilation the opposite of othering? Uh, is civilization the opposite no, of othering? assimilation. Well, I guess so, yes. Uh, when people are assimilated, they... Then now, well, of course, you see in the American society, you could be assimilated and still be the other, right? But yes, I think in a, in a broader sense. That's why the concept, the invention of the other, is such an intriguing title. It begs the question, when did that invention happen? Did it, was it invented by someone? Is it internalized? Do we each individually invent, invent it? Is it a, a product of society in general? When you just think about any religious text, it always is about the other, right? It's it's uh, about the Philistines and the and the, the Jews and the and the Greeks, you know, the battles between all these groups. Uh, it's all about the other, and who conquers and controls them. We're going to leave it there, Larry Hot. Thanks so much for being with us today. We really appreciate time, your insights. Really, just a pleasure to have you with us. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, Buzz. Thanks, Dan. See you next time. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Your one and only UMass Minutemen head to Auburn this Saturday for a showdown against the Tigers out of the SEC. Join me, Jay Burnham, along with Patriots Hall of Famer Pete Brock for all the action starting with the Milton Camp pregame show at 3 o'clock right here on your new home for UMass football. It's WHMP. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Local farmers are arriving at the co-op every day with summer berries, corn, tomatoes, and watermelon, and endless bounty. At the co-op seafood counter, little neck clams are rolling in. What goes better with corn and tomatoes than sweet, briny little necks? No time to cook today? The co-op makes pizza, sandwiches, burgers, sushi, and smoothies, and they make it all from scratch. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Comedy as a Weapon presents Comedy Cause 5, a comedy night fundraiser Saturday, September 9th at the Academy of Music in Northampton. Join comedians like Kim DeShields, Timothy Lovett, Janet McNamara, and HBO's Kevin Lee. Comedy Cause 5, the back-to-school edition at the Academy of Music in Northampton. Doors open at 7.30, tickets cost $25. All the proceeds will support the Care Center. Visit ComedyWeapon.com for more information. Sponsored by Sage Housing, Inc. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's shop Friday, Wildwood Barbecue? Correct. They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Ribs, brisket, and pulled pork smoked low and slow. 16 rotating craft beer taps. Inspired creative specials from a scratch kitchen. Wildwood Barbecue on Route 9 in Hadley is the real deal. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. The Paul Parent Garden Club, every Sunday, 6 to 8 a.m. Brought to you by Weinzick Nursery, locally owned and operated since 1954. Visit Mike, Amity, John, and the rest of the team at Weinzick Nursery, Route 9 in Hadley, and online at weinzicknursery.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. 
We are back and we want to share with you some thoughts about the prosecutions of Donald Trump. A number of developments this week, including that trial dates were set for March 6th of 2024, just as the primaries are beginning and before Super Tuesday. And wow, can Donald Trump actually run for president do the physical campaign and be on trial. Trial after trial after trial after trial. There are four jurisdictions that are looking to try Donald Trump and to try him quickly to respect his speedy trial rights, but really to force his hand. And Trump, of course, is famous for delay, for procrastination, for obfuscation, for avoiding the legal system. But this time, it seems to me that the legal system is really squeezing him. It's like the walls are coming closer and closer. And the fear that I had in reviewing the media yesterday and reading the papers was that all of this may amount to the coronation of Ron DeSantis as the Republican nominee and with this now revised persona and media presence as potentially a very real potential to be the next president of the United States, that all of this is in Ron DeSantis's wheelhouse because now he's just changed who he is. He's not a bad guy. He's a nice guy. He's not a stiff. He's he's really quite the man of the person. Um, he wasn't terrible. Uh, he isn't terrible on media. Uh, look how well he did during the debate where he said almost nothing, but he didn't step on his own uh, trip himself. So I think Ron DeSantis is having a very good week and, and Donald Trump is not. Your thoughts, Buzz? Well, I'm just wondering, Bill, I want to circle back to uh, Judge Tanya Chutkin in saying that she was setting this March date. If we assume that it's not Donald Trump, that it's not somebody that so many of us have just a the worst taste in our mouth about, but we have three separate but equal branches and the arguably most important position in this country, if not the world, as president of the United States, should a trial judge defer to the demands of the campaign when it's the job of a candidate to be able to uh, show who he is and what his policies are all about to an electorate that is waiting to hear more about him? Should a judge under normal circumstances, defer uh, a trial date and delay a trial date in order to accommodate that. Well, I, this is Dan. I, I just want to say I don't think it's fair that Donald Trump would have to be in court a day prior to Super Tuesday. It just doesn't seem fair. I could see a judge. I'm not saying that this is allowed, but a judge is going to review that and seem like you might be interfering in the process by assigning this date right before Super Tuesday. What do you think, Bill? Well, I think that Super Tuesday is, in fact, a consideration because Trump is not going to be tried and or convicted and or sentenced in a day. That's a long process. And starting the trial is an important event, but it isn't it doesn't matter whether the trial starts on day one or day five. Question is whether it starts quickly. And 
I think that is making a political statement, actually, and this and thus involves the court politically in a way that the court is saying, oh, no, we're not doing anything political. We're just doing exactly, I'm just doing exactly what I would do with any other defendant, which is we don't care about what your job is. This court comes first. Well, that's true, but I think it tends to make Trump more of a martyr, and I think that uh, the judge is playing into Trump's hands. I think that's a mistake. And what's the difference to the court if it's two days later? I, I, I absolutely agree with that. And uh, as much as I don't want to sort of accommodate uh, uh, Trump's uh, craziness, I, I do think that the day before Super Tuesday is kind of, as you say, it's playing into those who criticize the courts and say that this is a political prosecution. Well, in fact, it isn't, but this makes it look more like it is to those who believe that. There's an interesting part of what's going on in Georgia that I think we should note. Um, Mark Meadows, chief of staff, former chief of staff, chief of staff for Donald Trump, has filed a petition in federal court to move the case, the Georgia state case, to federal court for trial. This has some very practical uh, reasons behind it, uh, and it has uh, some misunderstandings that are accompanying it. The practical reasons is if he can get the case from Georgia state court into federal court, the jury pool changes. In the Georgia state prosecution, in, that is in Fulton County, which is a highly democratic um, uh, county. Uh, if it goes to federal court, the jury pool comes from a wide swath of Georgia and is likely to have many more Trump supporters, uh, people who are sympathetic to Trump uh, in the jury pool. And therefore, it has that very practical uh, application or purpose behind it. One thing that I think may be misunderstood is that people think, well, if it comes to federal court, then because it's a federal case that Donald Trump will try, if he's reelected or elected, to pardon himself and or the federal prosecutor, the federal authorities can dismiss the federal case uh, at that time when after he takes office again, God save us. Uh, and there's real problems with that, that argument because if the Georgia case were removed to federal court and he were convicted, he still would be convicted of a state crime and therefore the president could not, whether it's him or someone else, could not pardon the state crime. The, Fed, the United States president only has the authority to pardon federal crimes, not state crimes. And the fact that a state crime were tried in federal court would not change what he was convicted of. So Trump doesn't get a get out of jail free card, even if the case could be removed to federal court, which in my opinion is not going to happen. Well, Bill, in the couple of minutes we have left, I'll admit to you as an attorney, I've never seen a state case removed to federal court. Have you? I have, I did it once. Um, the statute has changed since that time. Uh, we brought a federal petition, a removal petition, uh, when I was representing uh, some uh, indigenous persons who were charged with various state crimes, and we removed it to state court. The judge said, I was just out of law school. The uh, judge said, oh, that's impossible. The federal courts have nothing to do this with this. We're going on with the state trial, and he did. And then after about a week, he said, you know, I've been reading that federal statute, and I don't think I have any jurisdiction. This case actually now is in federal court. Since then, the statute has changed, and 
you can't simply remove a case on civil rights grounds to federal court. There are very limited grounds for removal of a case, and it has to do with whether or not the person accused is performing federal duties in, of his office uh, at, during and as during the crime, uh, and whether these were official duties. And that's the only basis. And Mark Meadows is saying essentially everything I did, it was not political. It didn't have to do with the campaign. It was just my duties as chief of staff for the president. And that's bogus. It's, and I don't think it's going to succeed, but that's the argument he's making. Everything I did was as chief of staff or everything I did in Georgia, it was, wasn't political. It wasn't as part of the campaign. It was as chief of staff. And if that were true, he would have a strong basis for removal of the state case to federal court, but it's not true. So factually, I think it's, this argument is going to fall apart. As an attorney, is, is this a Hail Mary, as it's being often described as, that is ill-advised on Meadows' part, or do you think it's worth him pursuing? I don't see how it hurts him. Uh, it may set up an appeal point. Uh, it may come up during the trial as being, hey, uh, you really were acting as if in your federal capacity at that point and raise issues during the trial on what evidence can or can't come in. So, no, I don't think it's a Hail Mary. I think it's worth trying. And if I were his attorney, if you were his attorney, you tried to. Try, try what you can. Well, um, I think we only have 30 seconds left, Bill. Well, it's enough time to call a Hail Mary for Mark Meadows. And it's enough time to say that I think Donald Trump's avoidance of the criminal system may be coming to an end here here here's a slice of advice about pizza boxes it's okay to recycle the entire pizza box as long as it's empty for a long time greasy boxes were assumed to cause recycling problems but a new study proved they don't it's time to capture the three billion pizza boxes used annually in the u.s visit recyclesmartma.org to learn more about what can and can't get recycled after you've enjoyed tonight's pizza turn the box inside out discard what falls out and recycle the rest brought to you by the northampton dpw Hi, this is Tom from 4-H. What will the next 100 years look like for today's youth? According to the 4-H members of Hampshire counties, there are no limits. Youth, supported by adult 4-H club leaders, are being prepared to take on any role they can imagine. Astronaut, director, hockey player, surgeon, engineer, and CEO. These are just some of the roles that a recent survey shows that our 4-Hers not only dream about, but are preparing for. Join the 4-H team. Call me, Tom, at 413 413- WHMP North 101.5 WHMP This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP And welcome to the show. I am Buzz Eisenberg And I'm Bill Newman And uh, we have been Bill, covering um, to to the best that we can this rapidly changing landscape in Amherst involving the Amherst School Committee the Pelham School Committee, the Amherst Pelham Regional School Committee, and Union 26, which is uh, sort of uh, its mission, its jurisdiction, is the superintendency of uh, the schools in the Amherst Pelham Regional School Committee. And uh, things just keep changing. We have with us today Peter Demling, who is uh, the former chair of Union 26, and recently resigned uh, from that capacity as 
chair, uh, and that's in the uh, context of a number of resignations. We had yesterday Ben Harrington, who resigned as uh, school committee member and regional school committee chair, Sarah Hall, who resigned as the Pelham school committee chairwoman, and uh, we also have Allison McDonald, who resigned. Uh, she chaired the Amherst school committee. So uh, these uh, committees are rapidly changing, and all of this is in the wake of so much, and I'm going to ask Peter a little bit more about this, but certainly since um, May, we will remember that these, I think, wonderful student newspaper, the graphic students articulated, uh, the, they felt that there had been a, um, a almost oppressive um, uh, bullying, as it was described, of trans kids and LGBTQ uh, kids, and the result was the suspension of three guidance counselors. Eventually, the superintendent, Michael Morris, took a leave of absence, a medical leave. He came back only to resign, um, and he uh, met with the school committee. There was a decision made about his severance, which itself has become controversial. Uh, during Cunningham, who was, the, I think, his deputy in charge of... Uh, equity and inclusion and diversity at the, in the school district. Uh, she was suspended. She has now filed suit um, beginning in the Massachusetts Commission Against Discrimination saying she was discriminated against. I should point out that she's an African-American woman. Things are just hopping in Amherst, so <laughs> I have to turn my attention now to Peter Demling. Is there anything that I left out of my sort of background that you think is important? Well, I mean, do you have three more hours on the air? I mean, we could go uh, chapter... We certainly have a few minutes to talk about the background. <laughs> I mean, we could go chapter and verse on the whole history of Amherst, but I think you did a pretty good job summarizing the most recent events. Okay. Uh, and all of this in the context of the, the vote to approve new school, uh, the funding for new schools in, in Amherst. Yeah, uh, that's one of the backdrops, yeah. Yep. Yes. So you resigned. Mm -hmm. um, let's just cut to the quick. Yeah. Why did you resign? Yeah, so I mean, I have a short written statement, uh, you know, answering that question, then happy to chat. Um, so uh, six and a half years uh, of nonstop bullying, harassment, intimidation, and personal attacks is why I resigned. Uh, this was an email, public comments at meetings, physical disruption of meetings, newspaper letters, social media posts and comments, local opinion blogs, personally targeted press releases, baseless open meeting law complaints, people screaming expletives in my face as I walked to my car after meetings, organized caravans of cars parading past my home in protest, and all driven by the same core principle. If you disagree, then you deserve to be attacked for being personally lacking in progressive values. You don't care about teachers' lives if you want your kids to learn in person. You don't care about income inequality if you re refuse our contract demands. Requiring masks is punishing teachers. You don't care about keeping LGBTQ kids safe if you support the superintendent, and you're racist if you disagree about how to combat racism. It's taken a physical, mental, emotional toll built up over time, and I'm done. And I see my resignation statement and this little media tour I'm on as my last act of public service to say, this I experienced, I'm not alone in my experience, these are the specific groups I see promoting personal attacks. This is how and why I think they're doing it, and this is what I think we can do in response. If I can clearly communicate that, then I'll feel at peace that I did everything I could to do to help the situation. 
I will go off and roller skate and meditate and live my life, and what happens next will be for all of us to decide. Buzz, this is Dan. Can you, can uh, Peter, tell me, did you just say that some people tried to physically harm you or threaten you? Is is that what? I, did so, I catch that? Yeah. So, um, you know, I was I was never assaulted, um, but you know, there were times when I would walk out of meetings and to you know to jeers, and there was an, an instance where I was trying to unlock my car, and there was someone in my face screaming and swearing. Uh, I chaired a, a meeting uh, in in May where we had a police presence uh, that was unannounced in the parking lot that we could call in if needed. There was uh, an almost physical altercation at that meeting. This is before Doreen Cunningham, our assistant superintendent of uh, human resources, um, was put on leave. And uh, there were supporters of her at the meeting. There were other people at the meeting in, in conflict. We tried to get through our public comment according to our policy, the the... There was screaming and yelling that prevented us from doing that. We had a pretty chaotic uh, recess. Um, and yeah, we, there have been multiple times where parades of cars have gone past my home, you know, where my family, my personal life, uh, you know, trying to pressure um, uh, when uh, uh, decisions are disagreed with. And this, this is a tactic that has been used in Amherst in the past. They're, they're, the um, Political Action Committee, the Progressive Coalition of Amherst, uh, PCA, has has used this uh, uh, driving past town councilor homes uh, when they disagree with decisions. And, you know, um, and celebrated on local opinion blogs as appropriate democracy in action, speaking truth to power. And, you know, um, I, I happen to disagree that that's appropriate for local opinion, for local uh, elected officials. Uh, Bill, yesterday we had... Uh also recently resigned Ben Harrington on. He was the chair, as I said earlier, of the of the regional school committee and a member of the school committee in Amherst. Um, and he referred... I, personally, I do not like the term, but that's me. Um, he referred to Amherst as a... Uh, I think the same people that you're referring, referring to, mm -hmm. Peter Demling. Uh, he re referred to people who want to see Amherst as a woke-topia. <laughs> and he wrote that in his resignation... A letter and Bill, you asked him the question: How do you think this is going to help things by resigning? I, I'm sort of hearing the same kind of thing from Peter Demling here uh, that he felt personally he that was the right route to take was to resign rather than put up with this. Do you hear that the same way, Bill? Well, I'd like to ask Peter: uh, Do you think that resigning is, in some ways, I know you didn't sign up to go to war; right. you signed up to do to do public service, but it seems to me that there is an argument that this is the worst possible time for a resignation when people who have experience and, uh, and, and, and if history with these, the issues facing the town really are needed by the town. I understand why personally you may want to say, I've had it, I'm done, but mm -hmm. how, do you, how do you reconcile uh, what you saw as your mm -hmm. desire to do public service with giving it up at a time when well, things are getting really tough. Yeah. I mean, I would say that Ben Harrington, Allison McDonald, Sarah Hall, and myself aren't obligated for one more second of public service to our communities, given what we've been through. I mean, I went through three campaigns and three terms. And, you know, honestly, if, if the only consideration was the mental, physical, emotional health of myself and my family, I, I shouldn't have run two years ago, you know. But, but I did it because there were so few people willing to run. And, and I felt that, you know, and, and so many people coming, please, please run. And so, you know, that's, that's what I did. In terms of, 
you know, the, the situation that we're leaving the district in, you know, the worst possible decision that our district could have made was to treat Superintendent Morris the way that we did. There were, here was a superintendent, a leader of our schools, an ARPS employee for 23 years. He was a teacher in our schools. ARPS, Amherst Regional. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. In, in our public schools. 23-year employee, was a teacher, was a principal, was an assistant principal, was our superintendent for seven years, had, had nothing but positive um, performance reviews from the school committee, constant positive feedback, and a history of of publicly strongly supporting LGBTQ students. This wasn't some random person who we didn't know anything about. This was a trusted leader um, who was run out of town, and you know, cre- and uh, by creating an atmosphere that uh, you know, in in his to paraphrase his description, was just made his job untenable. So that that's the real. Um, thing that that made this situation the way that it is. You know, the fact that we cycled off now, you know, yes, it it creates some tumult in in the school committee leadership, but in terms of how the school district is going to be able to operate, say, like, you know, right now, the school school starting today, um, you know, um, know, I've never met a teacher, principal, uh, or a staff member who said they needed the school committee in order to do their jobs. You know, the students are going to have an amazing, wonderful experience we, we, we have amazing schools because we have amazing teachers. Despite all of my conflict with the teachers union, I still firmly believe that. Um, and so, you know, ARPS is going to be, uh, continue to be a wonderful experience for the kids. The adults are going to have to figure it out. And the biggest next shoe to drop to determine whether there's going to be further significant damage to the long-term health of our schools is going to be on November 7th when the entire school committee is up for election and these political action committees are already engaged in trying to determine the, uh, those candidates. What do you think is going to be? Uh, is there is, is there change afoot? That is, do you think that the things which are bothering you so much that you re- that led to mm-hmm. your resignation, and to the the resignation on the terms negotiated by the superintendent and your colleagues uh, Ben Harrington and Allison McDonald and Sarah Hall, do you? Is there any hope in the future for change that you think is what's needed in order to have better governance in Amherst schools? <laughs> I think you could ask the same general question about public discourse writ large in the nation and the state. Um, you know, that's a much longer conversation if I want to come back for eight hours of talk. But, um, you know, I, I see the core the, the core dynamic in Amherst politics as, as a conflict between the loud uh, vocal minority, I mean numerical minority, and the the quiet majority. Uh, and the quiet majority, you know, because they're the majority, you know, and has been reasonable and, and has won most of the elections. Um, and the the vocal minority has figured out that if you use these tactics, these if you dominate public discourse, public comment, and you harass and intimidate public officials in public and in their personal lives, it works. It has affected decisions. It has affected elections. And now they're going for broke with the slate of candidates openly celebrating and endorsing these kinds of tactics. And so, you know, I didn't I didn't resign for the purpose of raising awareness, but I do hope that the confluence of resignations of people all talking about the same thing, the same themes, um, will wake up the the quiet majority to a degree. Because the, the thing is, is that if you speak out against these things, you're going to get attacked. And so it's a tough ask to ask a resident to speak up and say, this is wrong, because then they're going to get attacked. But that's the only way that this evolves, is that those people then get supported, and those people get supported, and maybe we have a critical mass of people who can then say, this this is not acceptable, this is going to affect what I decide on November 7th, this is going to affect how I support public officials going forward. 
We are speaking with Peter Demling, who is uh, recently uh, resigned from the Amherst and Amherst Pelham schools. Uh, Dan, you had a question for Peter. Yeah, Peter. I mean, I, I think you would agree that there is some failings in the schools uh, regarding this most recent incident. And I'm curious to know from you, who do you think is ultimately uh, accountable and responsible for this? It's a great question. And the unsatisfying answer, and this gets to the root of the conflict over getting to this answer, is that we have to withhold judgment until we have an, an independent report that is able to uh, take the input, everyone's input, and uh, is access to all of the information, correspondence documents, and make that determination. That has to be a robust process to determine individual account accountability. We got a letter from our principals and administrators that I really take to heart, school committee did, um, saying we must adhere to process if we're going to really identify what happened. At the same time, that doesn't prevent us from taking steps to ensure student safety. You know, the district immediately took steps, and we continue to take steps. There was a detailed plan that Dr. Morris, um, our superintendent, uh, who's leaving at the end of this week, um, detailed out about about uh, changes to to take place in systems and processes and reporting and and training and and supports and, and whatnot. And that will be implemented. And so you can you can do both at the same time. It is set dis unsatisfying, though, uh, and I understand, you know, we're all human beings. We need a narrative explanation. We need to resolve the cognitive dissonance of why something happened, especially for things that are important and like, like this. Um, but it's, it's the nature of something this complex that we have to withhold judgment until we understand, you know, the full, full context. Peter Demling, I, I saw a guest, a guest column by uh, Lisa Kane. I believe it was in the Amherst mm -hmm. Bulletin. And, and uh, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, I, I just want you to comment on a couple of questions which she asked in her columns. Why didn't we ask more questions instead of immediately blaming the administrators involved? She's talking about the issues raised by the graphic involving uh, intolerance towards trans people and trans kids and LGBTQ kids. Why couldn't we wait for the conclusion of the investigation to determine the best course of action? Why do we have two discrimination complaints and no leader for our district? Is this really what we want as a community? We're going to continue our conversation with Peter Demling right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. I'm not exaggerating when I say this. QC Kinetics can change your life. You can live again without that chronic joint pain and without drugs or surgery. QC Kinetics is advanced regenerative medicine. They take your body's own concentrated healing properties and put them right into your aching joints to restore and repair that damaged tissue that's causing all of that horrible pain. The patient satisfaction reports are astonishing. Finally, a real alternative to the old ways of dealing with pain. And unlike surgery, there's no downtime with QC Kinetics treatments. If you have constant pain in your knees, hip, shoulder, or back, you need to call and get a free consultation from the medical professionals at QC Kinetics today. Imagine this fall, moving around pain-free, doing the things you love again, walking, hiking, playing with grandkids. Call QC Kinetics today for lasting relief. Call 413-992-5450. 
At Greenfield Savings Bank, one of the things we love about living in the Valley is all the locally grown food that's available here. For more than 25 years, a local nonprofit called CESA, which stands for Community Involved in Sustaining Agriculture, has been promoting locally grown food and supporting farms, farmers markets, and food businesses in our Valley. And to support CESA's mission, Greenfield Savings Bank is giving new customers a CESA canvas tote bag as a thank you gift when they open a new free GSB checking account. There are no monthly fees, no transaction fees, and you get free online banking, free e-statements, free debit card, and free GSB mobile app, including depositing checks from your mobile device. Our existing customers can also get a CISA Canvas tote bag when they enroll in GSB's free mobile banking or sign up for e-statements. So, join GSB and show your support for locally grown food and local banking. Get your CISA Canvas tote bag thank you gift from Greenfield Savings Bank. See bank or visit greenfieldsavings.com for full details. Member FDIC, member DIF. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We are talking to uh, Peter Demling, who recently resigned from the Amherst and Amherst Bellum school district, uh, uh, school committees. And uh, before the break, I asked you, uh, Peter, about a column from Lisa Kane, who is a parent. Her children have been in Amherst school since they were in kindergarten. And she asked questions about uh, why why uh, actions were taken before investigations were completed, about, um, about intolerance at the school and discriminatory actions at the school. And what do you think about Lisa's questions and her position, which is pro Morris, pro superintendent, uh, and uh, adverse to the termination of? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think it's of all the things I've read, I think it's probably the most eloquent and articulate um, point of view. Um, I mean, I would, I wouldn't necessarily call her column pro Morris. I would call it pro process, you know, and. Uh, and and what do you do when you have serious allegations um, against someone who you have a very positive history with? You know, like I said before, this wasn't some random person who came off the street. And so, you know, it really cuts to the core of when you are trying to determine individual accountability, when you're trying to evaluate the validity uh, or or the truthfulness of of anything anybody says. There's always a backdrop of, of, are you assuming the absolute worst intentions or are you assuming good intentions? And it doesn't mean you let people off scot-free for their actions, but, um, but you also don't you know, immediately crucify someone when there's an allegation, in, in, even if it's from someone who's doing their very best to, to report on something. Um, so you know, that's what I heard. And, you know, it's, um, yeah. Bill, I know you had a question for Peter. Yeah, I have two related questions, Peter Demling. One is, you said earlier in this show that there are specific groups promoting these attacks, these over-the-top, over out-of-control in some ways, uh, verbal attacks on you and other school committee members. I'm wondering if you are willing to identify those groups, in your opinion, who they are, who are engaged in this activity, which gets to the second question, which is, given what's happened, and given what you said is these groups intent to try to not only influence, but to control and to win the next elections, which are coming up soon for the elections for the school committee, who on God's green earth is going to want to stand up and say, no, I oppose to what these groups are saying. So first, who are the groups? What are they doing? And who is going to take them on? 
All right. Well, let's break this down. You know, so first part, the specific groups uh, in recent years in Amherst that have been promoting this kind of behavior are the Progressive Coalition of Amherst Political Action Committee (PCA) and our uh, in the APEA Teachers Union. That's our our, our Teachers Union in in ARPS, uh, and they utilize a local opinion blog called the Indie. Um, and so the, the the brief history of those is, you know, after um, our town government changed from town meeting to town council about 2019 or so, uh, there was an enormous amount of resentment from uh, individuals who felt like that that was the way to go. Uh, I would submit for consideration that one of the reasons they were so enamored and attached to that form of government uh, is that it lent itself to uh, dominance of a of a vocal minority willing to engage in this kind of behavior in, in, in the town meeting. And so when you switch to a form of government where that's harder to do, you get resentment. Um, that built up and they uh, established a platform for information where they didn't have to be fact-checked, where you could promote a something, you know, the, call it a, a objective report and inject your personal opinion or political agenda. Um, so that's been one force um, that's operated both in the schools and, and in the town. The, the but, other, but, but that I, I just want mm-hmm. to interrupt just to ask you that that representative town meeting versus town council, yeah. that's different than the school committee. The school committees were yes. still comprised as they are now. Yes, prior yes. To that I'm just change. explaining the origin of of why you know what this what the group is and why it it came to be. I also want to be clear as I talk about this. I'm not saying every member of these groups is engaged or even supports this kind of information. But what happens is that individuals that, that are in control at the leadership levels, you know, do actions and set expectations that allow their most fervent supporters to engage in this kind of behavior. So just want to be clear on that. Um, the, you know, the other group is our, is our teachers union, and um, they really became very openly hostile to both the school committee and the school district uh, after a leadership change in the summer of 2019 and then le- leading right into covid um, I'm sure it was similar across the river here, um, but it was an extremely public and vitriolic uh, fight in public between the school district and the and the teachers union about the return to in-person, really extreme rhetoric about you're murdering teachers if you're asking us to come back, um, you know, you're punishing us by asking us to wear masks, that kind of thing. Um, and uh, that rolled right into the, the last two years of the contract. Uh, of negotiating that, and then rolled right into this situation. So now you have these two organized groups, um, with with you know out for blood and 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 bared to the teeth for a political fight, openly uh, saying that their goal is to elect a school committee on November seventh that that supports their agenda and not this uncaring school committee that's been in charge. This is Dan. I've uh, since you brought this up with the teachers union. Can you talk about the budget? that uh, it seems like will be a, a big issue that the next school committee will deal with. There's a large deficit. If I'm heard correctly, it's around $1.5 million, and you don't have a superintendent, and you don't have a school committee. Yeah, so the deficits haven't been identified yet, so we, we won't know that for a, a little bit, but um, I would not be surprised if it's on that order of magnitude. Um, yeah, so and, uh, the, 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 and roughly how many teachers would that be if it's in that millions? Uh, that would be... Well, I mean, uh, roughly. Yeah, I mean, roughly twenty, fifteen. Divide that by I don't know, a hundred thousand or seventy thousand or whatever the average, depending on the district you're talking about, and um, uh, you know. But the, the the fundamental, the structural variable that you're talking about is are well, there's there's multiple. The, the first biggest thing is the thing that Northampton, every other district is going to have to deal with this year, which is the we've talked about the fiscal cliff. So we've we've gotten this artificial juice of federal stimulus money from COVID, which has been great. 
and now it's gone. And the next school year, the fiscal year that starts next July, is the first one where we can't use those funds. So that's, it's, those are exhausted. And so if you've juiced your operational budget and that juice is suddenly gone, you know, you're coming off the cliff. In addition, we have real constraints in Amherst in our region in terms of our budget, where our expenses are increasing at a percentage that's higher than our funding is increased. Amherst has its own uh, you know, financial troubles in terms of uh, having kicked the can down the road in so many capital projects. And so they're, they're not going to be able to significantly increase. Uh, and so this school committee, you know, six months from now at the region, six or seven months, is going to have to decide a budget and it's going to be very difficult. And we're going to have to try and do it the best we can. Uh, this is Dan. One of the issues seems to be affordability. Young families aren't moving in. They're not sending their kids to the schools, right? The school population has decreased in the last 10 years. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So, I mean, affordable housing is its own complex topic that I can't cover in 30 seconds. Um, uh, declining enrollment is another complex topic. That's something that's affected all of Western Massachusetts. Um, the, the largest variable there is just the birth rate, right? It's population right. dynamics. Um, you just have fewer children. But, you know, there are other factors that go into enrollment. And, you know, and while I will say, you know, while on the one and I, I am concerned that this is the worst possible marketing for Amherst schools right now in terms of what's attracting a new superintendent and staff and principals and, and families. Uh, so I am worried about that. On the other hand, I also see that, you know, Amherst has really good bones in its, the structure of its schools. Um, like I, I talked about earlier with our, our teachers, we still have really low class sizes. We have uh, you know, a really eclectic, diverse uh, student body in terms of uh, race. And we're a majority minority district and at the elementary level. Uh, so the diversity of race, ethnicity, language, income uh, for a, a town our size is, is pretty amazing. And if that's something that you value and you want your children to value, um, it's still an amazing experience to come to our school. So I'm still very high on the quality of our public schools. I am very concerned, however, because of that, what's going to happen, the damage that might be inflicted if people who don't have that same focus are elected on November 7th. Well, Peter Denley, I looked through, prior to this interview, I was looking through some uh, previous minutes uh, of the school committee online, and I, I just see how student-centered you are. That It seemed to me that you got into this business of being a school committee member uh, because you cared about our kids, cared about their education, cared about th their futures. And uh, here, it, it's clear to me you're very articulate and very passionate about... Uh, and very concerned about the future. What are what if anything are you going to do now that you're not not in a position of power as a school committee member? Are you still going to be involved in our schools or Amherst schools? Uh, and if so, how? Yeah, I mean, I'll be fully open and honest with you. I've done a lot of soul searching about that, and I'm uh, you know, it's it's been a transition process trying to decouple from this engagement. That's dominated all of my free time for the last six and a half years. On the one hand, I, I really did want to just do a clean break and say, I feel like I've done all I can do. I feel like I've done more than I should have been asked to. And and now I am going off to the sunset and going to roller skate, listen to fish, meditate, and, you know, it's all going to be good. Uh, on the other hand, you know, I, I, you know, I get a call from you. I get, I get a, a, a email from the Gazette. You know, I get people saying, well, what can we do? How should we organize? And I, I want to contribute. I'm worried about the sustained attacks on myself, frankly. Um, you know, I, I wrote about this, but, you know, it, it leaves a mark. Um, even if I know that people are completely baseless in, in, in their attacks, having someone 10 feet in, uh, from you in public comment, just breathing that kind of fire oh, and then over and over and over again, it, it, it leaves a mark. And, and I'm, I'm really struggling, to be honest, with how do I establish a balance in my life 
where you know I I can I can exist. I can be there for my family. I can, I can do my 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 job, <laughs> uh, and and help the town at the same time. I'm I'm gonna have to try and figure it out. But I really would say to any Amherst resident and voter, we need more people. You don't have to serve for six and a half years, but we need more people paying attention, speaking up, and and contributing to this discourse. Because you know, in in one sense, people get the government they deserve. I don't know if that's entirely true these days with gerrymandering, but um, you know. Uh, what happens next is going to be largely determined by what what the quiet majority decides to do in terms of our discourse. It's very interesting for us here in the studio, uh, for Bill and Dan and I, because we yesterday we heard Ben Harrington saying he just doesn't want to deal with it personally anymore. He'd like to leave Amherst. Yeah. Uh, totally. Don't blame him. <laughs> so th- this seems to be a recurring theme. I will point out to listeners, tomorrow, Allison McDonald, a recent uh, chair of the Amherst School Committee and a recent resignee, she will be uh, talking to us again, and I'm, I'm, I'm anxious to hear uh, how her observations uh, compare to yours and to Ben. But I, I really thank you, Peter Demling. I hope that the, uh, the extent to which this has been a traumatic experience for you is behind you in your rearview mirror. And I'm really glad that you uh, – thank you for your service in those years, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, we're going to be right back. We're going to be talking about the Farmer's Almanac right after this. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Amherst School Committee members Ben Harrington, Allison McDonald, and Peter Demling all resigned within the past two weeks. Ben Harrington spoke with Talk the Talk on WHMP about that decision. I think I've given up on Amherst. I lost faith in the town in general. It's not just the, the school district, but I, I think the problem is that, is that we've had an issue for quite a long time before I even stepped on to the school committee, and it's cultural. And I think right now it, it, it's going to take drastic action for people to look in the mirror. Harrington isn't just stepping down. He's leaving Amherst. It's worth sacrificing my, my political career or aspirations in order to get people to actually see themselves in like full-color, vivid HD. Harrington says his decision was met with some hostility. And once I made that decision, it's like the vitriol got worse and worse and worse and worse. The Amherst Town Council and remaining school committee members met this week to work on a plan to address the lack of a quorum, which essentially puts all policymaking decisions on hold. A man is under arrest following a reported shooting that left one person with non-life-threatening injuries Tuesday afternoon in the patch area of Turner's Falls. The shooting happened in the area between the Cumberland Farms on Montague City Road and the Connecticut River. The suspected shooter fled on foot into the wooded area with a search ensuing by local law enforcement agencies and the Massachusetts State Police, utilizing canine units and an air wing. The suspect was later taken into custody at approximately 9 p.m. following a traffic stop on I-91 in Springfield. Showers with some pockets of heavy rain this morning, maybe even a thunderstorm, and then some partial clearing this afternoon. Still the slight chance of a scattered shower, a high of 78 to 82. Partial clearing tonight, overnight low of 50 to 56. Mostly sunny tomorrow, 74 to 78, and the sunshine continues through the weekend. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. I'm Lisa Riley. Join me every Saturday at 9.30 a.m. here on WHMP as we share stories that shine a light on justice-involved individuals or just underdogs in the game of life, their struggles, their successes, and the many resources and opportunities available for those who are hustling to carve a new path and prove that failure isn't final. So unlock your future, rewrite your story. This is The Hustler Files. 
What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Local farmers are arriving at the co-op every day with summer berries, corn, tomatoes, and watermelon, and endless bounty. At the co-op seafood counter, little neck clams are rolling in. What goes better with corn and tomatoes than sweet, briny little necks? No time to cook today? The co-op makes pizza, sandwiches, burgers, sushi, and smoothies, and they make it all from scratch. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, the Pioneer Valley's newspaper covering Holyoke to Deerfield and Belchertown to the Hilltowns, was awarded New England Newspaper of the Year for their local news coverage. Home delivered six days a week and online 24-7. Try their digital-only subscription options and stay connected with your community wherever you are. Pick up a copy on newsstands, subscribe, or visit gazettenet.com. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, covering the Pioneer Valley since 1786. The Northampton Community Music Center provides quality, accessible music education to more than a thousand members of the greater Northampton community. Hi, this is Jason Trotta, Executive Director of the Northampton Community Music Center. Our scholarship fund helps those with limited means access affordable music instruction and has never turned away a qualifying applicant in its 33 years of existence. To find out how you can help, please visit our website at ncmc.net. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. Well, folks, your wait is over. The 2024 Old Farmer's Almanac has arrived uh, with its winter forecasts that can excite all of us, those who like snow, those who don't want to escape snow. And uh, now this almanac has it's been issuing its 80% accurate forecast, it tells us, since 1792. And now it's available, effective yesterday, I believe. With us to talk about it is the associate editor of the Old Farmer's Almanac, Tim Goodwin. Hello, Tim. Hello. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. Thank you for being here. So uh, here it is. We got the 2024 Almanac. And uh, tell us about it. Tell us what we should be looking forward to. Sure. I mean, it's an exciting day for, you know, the Almanac to come out. We've been working on it for you know, many months and up to a year for some parts of it. So, uh, you know, we've seen this quite a bit, but it's exciting for, you know, readers to, to be able to pick it up. Uh, you know, it, it the great thing about the Almanac is kind of it's, a, it's the blend of what made the Almanac what it started as, you know, a calendar of the heavens, um, you know, our, our weather forecast. But, you know, we try to bring new and exciting uh, information and stories for people in all different topics, gardening, folklore, uh, food, you know, it, it's really, there's something in there for everybody. Right. There's there's recipes in there, and there's seasonal recipes in there, and there's anecdotes and pleasantries from Almanac readers, and there's stories that the Almanac tells about cures for the common cold and the like. Uh, how do you put all that together as the associate editor? Yeah, I mean, we've got a, we've got a great editorial team. Um, you know, many, you know, we just... Uh, there's only been 13 editors um, in the history of the Almanac since 1792, but most recently Janice Stillman retired and uh, Carol Kinnear took over. Uh, so she's the 14th editor in the history of the Almanac. So, you know, it, it, we've got a great team. A lot of people have been here for a long time. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a process. You know, we, we look at all the topics. We have many meetings. People bring their ideas. Um, you know, we get writers that 
send in ideas as well, ones that we've worked with for a long time. So it, it's kind of a narrowing down process from there. Uh, of course, you want to take into account things that are happening in that year. You know, with the total eclipse coming up in 2024, of course, we want to put together a big story about that. You know, the Olympics are coming up in Paris in 2024. So, you know, we want to have something to hook people into that as well. So it's it's finding, you know, those those stories that are, you know, appealing to that year, but also bringing in something that people may not know about. And by saying Old Farmers Almanac, does old modify farmers or the almanac? <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, it, it, it started, you know, uh, you know, obviously the, the Old Farmer's Almanac is old. Uh, you know, we're the oldest continuously published periodical in North America. But, you know, it, it started with farmers. Farmers picked this up, you know, all those many years ago, centuries ago, to be able to, you know, read about the, or, you know, learn about the planting dates and, the you know, the sunrises and sunsets, knowing when they could plant crops with frost dates, those kind of things. So, yeah, there was, um, farmers found it as a very useful tool back then, and, you know, many do now, but, you know, it's obviously evolved since, you know, its inception. And I know that the Old Farmer's Almanac is available. It's really inexpensive. It's like $8.99, and you can get it at your independent bookshops. Uh, Bill, I often, when I want news about the weather and what to expect and what how I should dress today, I go to either NOAA or I go to AccuWeather or I go to our local uh, weathercasters. Um, so, uh, the Farmer's Almanac is a different kind of creature, isn't it? Bill, you there? Oh, that's to me. I'm sorry. I, I, I actually wanted to ask uh, the associate editor of the Farmer's Almanac uh, this question. How does the Farmer's Almanac compete with the internet why do people still want it what's the allure help me with that sure uh you know i think the allure of it is the is the is the long-range forecast you know like when you go on the internet you're going to find you know or you go on to television television station you're going to find you know what's happening that day you know planning out for the week you know with these forecasts we're looking you know sometimes a year in advance um and you know it it comes down to this formula that Robert B. Thomas created back in 1792. You know, he believed that, you know, weather on Earth were influenced by sunspots. You know, uh, of course, things have changed over the years with, you know, developing that formula. But, you know, we still employ these three scientific disciplines when creating these forecasts. You know, we're looking at solar science, you know, the study of those sunspots, climatology, meteorology. Um, and, and, you know, we're looking at trends and, and events, um, you know, and using that data to compare with solar patterns and historical weather conditions. You know, we're using, you know, when we develop our forecast, we're looking at, um, you know, deviations from normals, from averages. So, you know, we're using a 30-year a, a snapshot from, you know, that are put together by govern, government agencies. Um, the most recent one came out. From 19, you know, it covers 1991 to 2020. Um, so we're looking at that data and comparing it to historical conditions, and that's how we're able to put these forecasts together. Are they always 100% accurate? No, but you know, for the amount of time that we're able to, you know, forecast into the future, we do pretty well. Well, on your webpage, it says 80% accurate. Uh 
since 1792. That's quite a track record. I'm looking right now, um, Tim Goodwin, associate editor of the Old Farmer's Almanac. I'm looking in, uh, at a map of the United States contained in the new uh, 2024 Old Farmer's Almanac, and it says here in New England we can expect mild, comma, snowy conditions this winter. What does mild mean in the context of snowy? Sure. I mean, you know, New England, we're prepared for those snowy winters, right? I mean, they came a little bit later last year, wasn't as much snow early on. Um, you know, we got up here in Dublin, New Hampshire, we got dumped on in, you know, late February, March even. Um, huge storms down the street from us. Uh, so expect, you know, more snow than, you know, it's going to be snowier than, than average. Um, but when it comes to temperatures, and we all felt it last year, the temperatures were pretty balmy for most of the winter. Uh, so, you know, expect kind of those mild temperatures when it comes to the winter months to continue. Um, doesn't mean we're not going to have our bouts of cold and, and snowy conditions. There will be some rain mixed in there, too. Um, but, you know, it, it, when you think about the, the averages over the last 30 years when it comes to temperatures in, you know, December and January and February, it's going to be a little bit more mild. Are there actual uh, meteorologists who are, you know, have the credentials of a, of, a, of a scientist who are involved in making these predictions? Sure. Yeah, we we do partner with some um, some really knowledgeable uh, meteorologists and, and people that have been doing this for a really long time. Um, it's a it's a partnership that you know has has worked for for a number of years. Um, and it's, it's, you know, we're able to lean on their expertise and, you know, we're able to do what we need to do to get, you know, it to the point where it's printed and, and people can understand it and we, you know, put the information out there. Um, but yeah, you know, we've, you know, we've got to lean on those people who have that expertise in those, uh, in those areas. I will put, I, uh, I appreciate the fact that you mentioned that you're, uh, there in Dublin, New Hampshire, which is where the old Farmanac, uh, farmer's almanac is, is centered. The other thing that people don't know, it's a 100% employee-owned company, the old farmer's almanac. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, it, it was something that, um, you know, the Yankee Publishing, which owns, you know, the old farmer's almanac and, and Yankee Magazine, um, as well as a couple other publications, uh, you know, it's been a family-owned company for a very long time. Um, and it, it came to a point where, you know, it... it seems like uh, they needed to make a, an effort to kind of keep it, you know, didn't want to see it at some point get into the hands of a bigger corporation. Um, so, so turning it over to the employees was the, was the logical step for the, you know, for the family that was still involved. Um, so made the decision to, to switch to employee-owned. And just recently, you know, within the last year, we've become 100% employee-owned. Um, it's, a, it's a great opportunity for everybody who works here. I've been here for a little less than two years, but, um, it, you know, it really gives you a different feel, you know, when you're, when you're putting in a day's work, when you know that what you're doing, you know, is there's, there's more to it than, you know, just a paycheck. And it still employs that same uh, that same cover that, that that iconic cover that we're all used to seeing from the time we were kids. The old farmer's almanac. Uh, it has uh, pictures of people from 1792, portraits on it, and um, all kinds of work that farmers might be engaged in right there on the cover. I love that. Is that a is that a dis decision that you make every year? Should we or should we not use that same cover? Or is that just goes without saying? 
Nope. It's, uh, I mean, it's iconic in, in our opinion. You know, it's something that people look for. It's something, as you said, people remember. I remember seeing it when I was a kid and, you know, in my aunt's house, uh, you know, my mom would buy it too. And, you know, that you may not always remember what was in it, but you remember that cover. And having that cover is, there's a sense of nostalgia to it. Um, and there's no reason to, to deviate from that. You know, it's something that's really, it's part of the old Farmer's Almanac brand. And it's something that's going to live with it for, you know, as long as it goes. We are talking with associate editor Tim Goodwin of the Old Farmer's Almanac. Uh, we're about to take a break. Before we do, how do people get their hands on the 2024 farm, Old Farmer's Almanac? Yeah, I mean, you can, you know, just about anywhere books and magazines are sold, um, you'll be able to find it. Uh, if you're not sure, if you ha- can't find it in your area, you can go to almanac.com slash where to buy. You know, you put in your zip code or post, uh, postal code, and, um, yeah, it, it'll give you a list of places in your area that uh, you can find it. Um, also, you know, you can find it on Amazon um, as well as, you know, um, on our website at almanac.com slash shop. Is it available in a digital form? Yeah, we have an e-edition as well. Um, it, so, yeah, for people who are who would rather have it on their Kindle or their iPad, there is an option to, that's something that you can get through our website as well. Well, we're going to continue our conversation with Tim Goodwin about the Old Farmer's Almanac right after this. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It wasn't necessary, and it probably wasn't even appropriate. On the one hand, I don't want that to sound like I don't support schools. I have a long history of supporting schools, certainly longer than any one of those city councilors. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP News, Information, and the Arts. The Paul Parent Garden Club, every Sunday, 6 to 8 a.m. Brought to you by Weinzick Nursery, locally owned and operated since 1954. Visit Mike, Amity, John, and the rest of the team at Weinzick Nursery, Route 9 in Hadley, and online at WeinzickNursery.com. Your 1-0 UMass Minutemen head to Auburn this Saturday for a showdown against the Tigers out of the SEC. Join me, Jay Burnham, along with Patriots Hall of Famer Pete Brock for all the action starting with the Milton Camp pregame show at 3 o'clock right here on your new home for UMass football. It's WHMP. An investigation by the Markup and KFF Health News claims 12 of the nation's largest independent and grocery-connected drugstores are sharing consumer data with media companies. In particular, the data includes information about birth control and HIV drug purchases. The FDA has officially approved a new vaccine for pregnant women during weeks 32 through 36 of pregnancy that would help protect their babies from RSV, a respiratory infection. RSV is a common cause of illness in children, and infants are among those at the highest risk. Zillow's 2023 Consumer Housing Trends Report has found that this year, half of all home buyers are purchasing their first home, the highest share of first-time home buyers Zillow has ever recorded. The reason that percentage is so high is that existing homeowners aren't selling and buying new homes. I'm Mark Huffman. Learn more at ConsumerAffairs.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back, and both Bill and I are really thrilled to have uh, Tim Goodwin, the associate editor of the 2024 Old Farmer's Almanac. 
here. We're getting ready for a winter wonderland of snow. Bill, you have a question for Tim. So I would like to understand why the Farmer's Almanac, which had a re- the 2024 edition, which had its release date yesterday, is so not only iconic, but actually quoted widely. It's a big deal in the culture of this country. The old farmers, one singular apostrophe S, almanac, and it's quoted. And in some ways it's quoted because it's serious or taken seriously. On the other hand, it's quoted in some ways because, well, it's it's nostalgic, but we live with it. What do, to what do you attribute the longevity and the popularity of this publication? You know, I mean, I think the longevity goes to, you know, it, it goes to the fact that, you know, people have passed this down from generation to generation. You know, like I said before, I remember seeing this in my mom's house and my aunt's house. Uh, you know, we get calls and emails from people that tell us their stories of how, you know, their grandparents had it, uh, you know, on their coffee table or in that little table next to the, the rocking chair. And they'd pick it up when they were a kid, and they remember that cover. And so, you know, they 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 will sit there and they will look at it. And then when they get to be older, or, you know, start to have families of their own, and they start buying it. So it's it's one of those things that is just continuously passed down through the generations. Um, I think that people come to us because they trust us, because we've been around for so long. People, you know, people want to come to us for their advice when it comes to gardening, you know, farming, food recipes. I mean, you know, the the print edition has so much in it. But if you go to our website, you know, we've got tons and tons of recipes, plant pages for days. I mean, there's there's so much that um, – we're able to offer, but I think it's also because we've kind of stayed true to what made the almanac unique and special in the beginning. You know, we haven't strayed far from those those subjects and those topics that you know we've really worked hard to. Um, I don't, I don't want to say become experts in, but uh, you know, share our expertise with you. So people look to us and they want to know, you know, if they're having a problem with their garden. They're going to come to us and they're going to ask questions and we're going to do our best to answer them. It, it is so interesting to me the the length, the longevity uh, that Bill was alluding to of the old Farmer's Almanac from 1792. I mean, it's up there in New Hampshire is where it's headquartered. In 1788, the Constitution was ratified. New Hampshire was the ninth of 13 colonies, former colonies that actually ratified the U.S. Constitution. It was only four years later that the old farmer's almanac began its run. So um, what else What else do you want to tell people about what's going to be happening weather-wise in this country this winter? Yeah, I mean, if you, you know, whoever picks up the the almanac or goes onto our website, you're going to see, you know, that, that winter wonderland for a good portion of the country, you know, um, outside of, you know, that Pacific Northwest. And if you kind of curl your way down through California, across over to Texas, into the south, they're not in that cold, snowy area. But, you know, outside of us up here in the Northeast, which we've got kind of mild and snowy winter, everything else is going to be cold and snowy. Um, so, it's going to be wet for the most part um, in that southern part of the country, uh, from Southern California all the way over to, you know, the Carolinas. Uh, you know, 
colder up in the Pacific Northwest, dry, you know, near the coast. Um, but yeah, it's it, it for most of the country they can expect cold and snowy conditions, um, which isn't you know different than you know that's what I expect. You know, living in New Hampshire, that's what I expect. I expect it to be cold and snowy. My sister lives in Minnesota. She expects it as well. They got so much snow last year. It was one of the, you know, highest snowfalls on record for the year. Um, so that's what they expect, and that's what people can expect this year. Well, people can expect that they can find so much information in the Old Farmer's Almanac for 2024. One more time, how do people get their hands on it? Yeah, I mean, anywhere you, you know, can buy books, magazines, um, you know, grocery stores and places like um, Lowe's and, and Tractor Supply, those places will have it. But if people you know, are having a fi- hard time finding it in the stores or don't want to go out and they want to order it and have it shipped to their house, you know, you can order it on our website. Which is almanac.com. Um, correct. We just, yep. uh, we're delighted to have you on, Tim Goodwin, and we're delighted to know that our 2024 Old Farmer's Almanac is available. Thank you all. This is Talk the Talk. Hi, Tom Hartman here. Be sure to join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. Occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week for We the People. On 101.5 and 1400. Join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. WHMP. Have you heard of the Living Building Challenge? The Hitchcock Center for the Environment in Amherst invites you to explore a revolutionary new kind of building, generating its own electricity and using only water collected on site from rain. The Hitchcock Center is our region's first public environmental education center, demonstrating the highest standard of sustainable design. Come visit us. The Hitchcock Center, 845 West Street in Amherst. For more information, visit hitchcockcenter.org. WHMP Northampton and 